Good morning and welcome to episode 1450 of Effectively Wild, baseball podcast fangraphs.com brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Sam Miller of ESPN along with Ben Lindbergh, the ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. We are watching the final inning. Well, presumably the final inning. We'll see. (laughs) Things could get crazy, but we are watching the final half inning of Game 6 of the World Series. There are two outs and... Someone, Carlos Correa, I think, just doubled, and uh, he doubled near the top of the wall. And A.J. Hinch considered using a replay uh, to see if it had actually gone over. <laughs> Went down by five in the bottom of the ninth. You would think, if if we're if what we have heard is true, you would actually prefer to have the runner on second in that situation. Yes, that's than, true. Than to have him score. I mean, uh, Kenley Jansen would balk this run home. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, yeah. he didn't though. He it was a double, and uh, he would have lost that review, or I don't know, maybe he would have won. I don't know. Who can know anything about any call right now? So <laughs> exactly, <laughs> we're we're still digesting this, and we'll try to figure out what we think. We're in still real eating time. it. We're literally still yeah, eating it. I guess that's true. Hasn't even gotten to the digestion point yet. So this was wild, and we needed this, I think. We needed a wild game in this World Series because this World Series was not really riveting, and we finally got one. We finally got kind of a a classic game, not in terms of the final score, if the final score ends up being what it is as we are speaking right now, but in terms of eventfulness and newsworthiness and things to talk and blog about, we could almost do like a draft of the seventh inning in this game the way that we did of ALDS Game 5 in the 2015 series. It was almost that weird, maybe not quite that weird, but a lot to discuss for just one baseball game. And we hadn't even planned to record, but we are, are doing kind of an emergency recording here. So, Oh my gosh, did you <laughs> see this Donald Trump tweet from 2012 that is now being retweeted? No, there's always a tweet. What is it? When Strasburg running ready? in the baseline. No, here you go. When Strasburg, this is October 18, 2012. When Strasburg leaves the Nationals for another team for more money, will Washington still like the decision to shut him down for his good? <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, I thought it might be about Trey Turner running in the the baseline from 2012. That would the, be something. Yeah. So. If this ends, and we will report when it does any moment now, presumably the Nationals won the game. They beat the Astros. They fended off elimination yet again to force a Game 7. I'm speaking, yes, it is over now, so I can officially speak in the past tense. 7-2 Nationals, and a lot to discuss here. Great pitching performance, uh, timely hitting, big hits, demonstrative actions, Bat carrying (laughs) the opposite of bat flips. The new bat flip is the bat carry. But I I guess we should start with the play. The play occupies us all, and it looked like it would be an even bigger deal. It is a less big deal than it potentially could have been. Except (laughs) for one thing, which I'll get to maybe at the end of of, uh, the discussion of this play. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll start here, and I don't know how long this will take, but so first inning, we we get scoring again, uh, just as the last time Verlander and Strasburg matched up. Nationals take the lead in the first, Houston takes the lead back in the second, so finally we've got a game where we've got some lead changes, because the Nationals then took the lead back again in the fifth on the Juan Soto homer, so it was 3-2 Nationals at that point. We go to the seventh inning. And Jan Gomes leads off the top of the seventh with a single, and that brings up Trey Turner. So Trey Turner grounds out, seems to ground out softly, as game day put it, from Peacock to Guriel. And Turner is running. Well, we can talk about where he was running, but the upshot is that Peacock makes a wide throw. It pulls Guriel's glove or hand into Turner, who is running up the baseline, and Guriel's glove flies off. I don't know whether he helped sell that by ejecting it off his hand, but there's contact made with Turner, and Trey Turner is called out for interference by umpire Sam Holbrook. At the time, again, this is a one-run game, so this is momentous. This could be serious swinging play because either you have runners on second and third with no out, 
where the Nationals are very likely to add onto their lead, or you have runner on first and one out, which is not nearly as much of a threat. And I think the swing in win expectancy here was something like 14, 15 points. So, you know, that's that's major. And that's not even, I mean, that's not even adjusting for the Nationals bullpen. Right. Yes. Which I mean, I, I we at the at that point we didn't know that Strasburg had two and a third more extremely <laughs> efficient innings in him. But I mean, you, you, we're all we're all nervous at that point uh, with the Nationals having a one run lead. Right. Yes. So I'm I'm trying to look up the figures here because uh, my colleague Zach Cram looked it up. So it was Nationals going from 84 percent to win if the call stands and if Turner is out and there's a runner on first with one out. Versus 69.7% to win if you get the call reversed or the call never made and runners in second and third with no outs. So big swing, obviously, almost 15% swing in win expectancy in a must-win game. This is a call that you rarely see made, and (laughs) we watched the, the many replays, and... Everyone was upset, and the Nationals were ready to protest the game, except you can't actually protest this because it's an umpire judgment call, so it can't be reviewed, it can't be overturned, except that there was a a very long replay review anyway, and it's still not entirely clear to me what was happening during that several-minute delay which uh, I gathered from Verducci's report during the game that the umps were just like calling to hear what the rule was or something. That that seems to be what he was saying. Like, I don't know what the purpose of that extremely long call was. And maybe some of the post-game reporting will illuminate this. But there was no way for it to be reviewed. And in a way, if, if I mean, if they had overturned this call, that would have been even worse probably like no one's going to be happy in either case but you can't just make an exception and say it's reviewable this one time because it's world series game six and we don't want to screw this up so i don't know how much of this was just the umps like please save us like tell us something get us out of this situation i don't want to be in this situation but they hung on for a really long time and then the the call stood as it had to i think and then we got further hysterics after that, but I guess we should talk about the call itself and the play itself. So, all right. So, Ben, <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question, and okay. I, I'm, I I hate to do this, but I'm going to demand a simple yes or no okay. uh, answer before I'll we try. talk about it. I know that you're not going to give me one. You're going <laughs> to fight and try hard not to, and but I, I'm demanding it. Okay, I'll try. Was that a bad call? Yes or no? <sighs> yes, I agree. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, I I think that <laughs> I guess in the umpire's defense, it's a bad rule. It's, it's a, a very bad rule. <laughs> it's a, it's just a, it's the only reason that that rule has survived 150 years of baseball is that it's so rarely enforced. Mm-hmm. It like you just it's it's so it's such a bad rule. It's so frustrating. It's so vague. It's nonsensical. You don't need you don't think <laughs> there's no other place where the runner is not allowed to run in the way of a throw that doesn't make sense that's not in line with baseball the whole point of it is is very silly and it forces an extremely unnatural act i mean it makes sense for that route that you are supposed to take that you were theoretically supposed to take makes sense if you were in the left-handed batter's box and your follow-through mm-hmm. takes you to the right side of the batting of the the first baseline but if you are a right-handed batter you cannot naturally run in that in that that lane that they give you mm-hmm. and so nobody does nobody ever does nobody has ever nobody ever does you would have to move off to the side and then come back to the bag i mean that's just it's it's unthinkable nobody does it not you know one inning later jose altuve got thrown out on a on a plate at third base and if you watched where he was running he was even further left than trey turner everybody runs to the left just to the left now not not on the grass you can't if your swing takes you way off where you're running on the grass and like a you know in a severe way then yeah you probably need to straighten it up especially if there's a play coming from behind you but if you're just running to first on a play that isn't even a you know, tapper to the catcher or anything like that. You're just going to run straight to the bag. And that's what Trey Turner did. So the only way that that rule has survived all this time is that it almost never comes up. It's hardly ever enforced. It's only enforced if it's egregious. And uh, the appropriate way to interpret that rule 
is if it's not super egregious, you just don't call it. And you certainly don't call it in a World Series changing moment like that. You don't have to go looking for the clever call, in my opinion, right there. So yeah, I thought it was a bad call. Yeah, well, so right, I saw. So there's the question of, do you do your job differently? If it's World Series Game 6 or if it's some mostly meaningless game in May. And so I've seen a lot of people say, yeah, it's World Series Game 6, but you go with your gut and your judgment and you do the job the way that you would do it at any time. And call it as you see it and don't make an exception because it's World Series Game 6. Now, I see the point there. On the other hand, this is a call that you so rarely make anyway that the bar has to be quite high for you to make this call. And I mean, you could say, well, hey, if this is really a rule violation, if he really did do the thing you're not allowed to do, then you should be more strict about enforcing it in this situation. I mean, if you think that you're right, then you should go with your convictions because uh, it's really important either way. But this just didn't seem to deviate enough from the typical play Right. To to call it, really. It's not and, even clear that... It's not even clear, having watched it in slow motion, whether he was even in violation of the rule. Now, mm-hmm. the rule says... The rule covers the final 45 feet. Yeah. Which then... That is just truly absurd. I mean, the idea <laughs> that I? you're going to adjust within 45 feet yeah. to get on the other side when you're running from, you know, two feet... where You know, two or three feet left of the line because that's where your swing takes you. Is just so nonsensical. And so it says the final 45 feet. So sure, Trey Turner was definitely not in the lane at the 45 feet mark, but 45 foot mark. But when the throw was coming, when the when the play was needing to be made, was he then out of range? Even then, I can't tell. I mean, I in (laughs) slow motion, I couldn't really tell. Uh, Watching it multiple times, I couldn't really tell. So to as an umpire to say that, you know, you saw it. I mean, hey, that's a that's a courageous call. Um, (laughs) But again, this wasn't even an outrageous or uh, egregious violation of this supposed rule if it was a violation at all. And so it's just such an over-aggressive call, I think. I think so, too. And right, I guess by the letter of the Everybody hates that rule, too. It's every time you call it, everybody hates it. Right, yes. (laughs) So if you take a strict interpretation of this, then... Technically, I suppose it was correct, depending on how you (laughs) interpret it. It's so hard. I'll just, I'll read the rule and I promise you, whoever is listening, it will not clarify anything because it's so, A, it's poorly conceived, B, it's poorly written. And so I I can hardly even, like, my eyes cross as I get halfway through the rule. It's like... Fielded to first base. (laughs) Yeah. I I could barely say even which rule it is. It's like rule 5.09 parentheses A parentheses 11. And I don't know where this text even starts. It's like part of this long chain of rule subsections. So it says... And I guess there's the precedent to what I'm about to read is, is I guess, the, the there is interference if. And then it says, in running the last half of the distance from home base to first base, while the ball is being fielded to first base, he runs outside, parentheses, to the right of the three-foot line or inside, parentheses, to the left of the foul line. And in the umpire's judgment, in so doing, interferes with the fielder taking the throw at first base, in which case the ball is dead, semicolon, except that he may run outside, parentheses, to the right of the three-foot line or inside, parentheses, to the left of the foul line to avoid a fielder attempting to field a batted ball. That was all... (laughs) Yeah, and uh, and then there's a comment. Then there's a comment, which is actually, I think, is pretty crucial to this as well. (laughs) Okay, so here comes the comment. The lines marking the three-foot lane are a part of that lane, and a batter runner is required to have both feet within the three-foot lane or on the lines marking the lane. The batter runner is permitted to exit the three-foot lane by means of a step, stride, reach, or slide in the immediate vicinity of first base for the sole purpose of touching first base. Yeah. 
And so <laughs> I just, while you were reading that, I just watched the play again, the, the okay. shot coming right down the line. And, um, you know, uh, again, as noted, if you want to put the 45 foot rule uh, in effect, then yes, he was, he was out of that at 45 feet. If you are only concerned though with where he was when the ball was being fielded by the first baseman, which is, I believe, the only time that it matters because that's the only time you're interfering with the fielder, then he was basically right on the line of the the thing, which it says the line is part of the lane, right? Mm-hmm. And then it also says the batter runner is permitted to exit the lane by means of a step, stride, reach, or slide in the immediate vicinity of first base for the sole purpose of touching first base. And he was in the immediate vicinity of first base. He was landing on the base, and he had only a sole purpose of existence at that point, which was <laughs> yeah. touching first base. And so he was not attempting to do anything other than touch first base. And so mm-hmm. his at that point, I, I don't even know that Again, I, I don't think that I think that you could make the case that he was legal by two different clauses in this rule. But mm-hmm. even if he wasn't, <laughs> it's a bad rule. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is this is pretty terrible that we are trying to parse this and struggling so much. And and this comes up every now and then. So. And by the way, the and then Jan Gomes has to go back to first. Yeah. How does that make sense? (laughs) That too. Yeah. Huh. So maybe this will be the impetus to finally fix this thing. Because like this comes up every now and then and it's inconsistently applied and no one really knows what the rule is. I don't even know if the umpires necessarily always know or they may interpret it in different ways. And we got to fix this, right? This, This probably should have been fixed before. But maybe now that we have like the play, like capital Trey Turner play, and granted it didn't end up swinging the game or the series, fortunately, but the scrutiny here, the worst case scenario that could have come to pass, maybe we do actually get some clarification, some reworking here. And I don't know what the ideal way to rework this is. Like, can you just uh, widen the lane so that the whole bag is inside the foul line? Like, does that make sense? Like, uh, Kyle Schwarber tweeted, why put the bag in fair territory? Yeah. Go and do the softball orange safety bag so we can make it clear where to touch the bag in foul territory. Such a bad rule. Yeah, there's there's no reason not to have the softball bag except for that it looks dorky. (laughs) But on the other hand, I don't, like, I also don't, my guess, this is completely speculative, 100% guess here, but my guess is that this rule dates back to when first baseman fielded the ball by just standing, like, on the bag, like, two feet on the bag, like, they hadn't figured out athleticism yet, (laughs) and so they were just standing on the bag, fielding the throw, and there was, like, a, it was that runners were just getting in the first baseman's business on the bag, and so they made a rule that he had to go to the outside of the bag, basically, and that that's just not really a problem anymore. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's just a guess. I don't even know why I felt like I needed to make that guess. It makes my whole argument weaker. <laughs> Kyle Schwarber, yeah, no, he knows the game. He's a ball player. Yeah. So yeah, let's go with that. Let's let's change it so that this does not come up, right? Because uh, people are sending us examples of previous plays, like last year's World Series Game Four where there was a run scored on sort of a similar play and it was not interference. And then someone also sent us the 1998 play where Chuck Knobloch stood there arguing and uh, the the run came around to score while he was arguing in ALCS game two. And that was sort of a similar looking play and that was not called interference. So I don't know, this just, uh, I'd have to break those down frame by frame to see if those were exactly the same, but probably similar enough. And there's just widespread confusion. Like, I don't know that anyone in Houston knew what was going on during this long delay. And I don't know that people at the broadcast booth knew what was going on twitter was like diving into rule books and everyone was trying to piece together what we knew and didn't know to try to decipher this thing so 
let's just avoid this. Like, we could probably just avoid having to have this conversation in the future, right? And maybe this will be the thing that actually makes us straighten out this rule with semicolons and four parentheticals and, and nonsense. So, yeah, it's really, if, if that is, if that's the goal, then it's really nice that this didn't end up mattering yes. to either team because now nobody is going to be too defensive about it i mean yeah. if, if the astros had ended up winning this game four to three and we were talking about this play mm-hmm. then you would have everybody would be dug in on their partisan right. position and uh but now nobody nobody needs to defend it everybody yeah. can just think oh boy that's that was a bad feeling that we all had for 16 minutes of baseball <laughs> we shouldn't feel that way yeah, and I'm going to say fortunately, not that I, I really have a rooting interest here, but I think fortunately for everyone, fortunately for, well, not the Astros, but everyone but the Astros, Eaton popped out and then Anthony Rendon hit a, a two-run homer, which sort of didn't seal the game, but gave a, gave the Nationals some breathing room and made it much less likely that this play would come back to, to bite them and be decisive. And ultimately, it was not. They tacked on a couple more runs, and they won 7-2. to But that, that that really took the pressure off. And I'm sure that lots of people who were sweating at the league office because they were envisioning this being the story of the game and the series forever and ever <laughs> were pretty happy to have Rendon take that off the table, more or less, with one swing. And, and who knows? Like, maybe Will Harris gave up that home run because he had to wait forever for that pointless review clarification talking to new york and asking them to bail the empires out so you know maybe he doesn't give up that home run if he gets to stay in his rhythm that was the first run or runs he had allowed all postseason he's been totally dependable and then he gave up a home run to a really good hitter but you never know whether that may have played a part in it Mm -hmm. and while that was all going on we got the the benefit of the sensitive, the hot mics that we were talking about with the umpires. We got that with Trey Turner, who was like basically in the dugout demanding to speak to the supervisor, basically. He's like, can I speak to someone in charge here? He was like audibly, very audibly accusing Joe Torrey, who was in the stands and is in charge of discipline and umpiring and everything. He said he was like hiding back there and like not wanting to to give a ruling or have any part in this, which obviously I, I didn't see Joe Torrey and can't confirm, but it was pretty amusing to hear Trey Turner just accusing a high-ranking MLB executive of just like hanging his head and trying to avoid eye contact with everyone so that he did not have to be a part of this. I just learned what ball don't lie actually means. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> I, I I have seen that phrase many, many thousands of times and never quite got it. I just thought, oh, that's one of those other sports. And then everybody <laughs> was tweeting it about the Anthony Rendon hitting a home run. Yes, yeah. And so I thought, how does that make, how does that play? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think I vaguely thought that it was like one of those things where um, like, uh, you know, the like that thing in baseball history where a guy said the ball hit his foot and the umpire's like, no, it didn't. And he got the shoe polish, you know, like you remember, you know, that one. (laughs) Yeah. So that's maybe what I thought, but that's not what it is. All right. Everybody (laughs) else can go look it up. I've had to look it up myself. So I'll I'll save anyone (laughs) the trouble. It's like the idea that I have looked it up in the past, not tonight, but it's like the idea that uh, the ball balances the the karmic scales somehow. So that if if you get a, a foul called in your favor that you shouldn't have, then you'll miss the free throws just to kind of even the the cosmic justice basically exactly yeah so so i guess that's uh, sort of what happened here uh, maybe it was the bat not lying in this case but anyway that was wild and I'm sure we're going to get emails about this, and I don't want to tell anyone not to email us, but on the other hand, if you do email us and and, uh, break down this rule in great detail, I can't guarantee that I will read it very closely because uh, just any time I try to think about this rule, it makes some part of my brain shut down almost. So I, I, (laughs) I almost can't blame the umpires for screwing this up sometimes except that it's their job but they almost would have to screw it up sometimes unless they 
never called it ever, which maybe they just shouldn't do (laughs) until they fix this somehow. All right. So Ben, let me ask you a question. In the ninth inning, Steven Strasburg is pulled from the game and Sean Doolittle comes in. At that point, Chip Hale was managing the team. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think that there is any chance whatsoever, or maybe do you think there's a great chance that Davey Martinez did not direct that pitching change, that, that Chip Hale actually was in charge and did make that pitching change? I doubt it. You do? Probably not, right? Martinez probably in the clubhouse, in the tunnel, relaying something, I would think. But but... Lore lore (laughs) is certainly that the ejected manager stays in contact up the tunnel and is still uh, Mm -hmm. directing plays. That is the lore. Uh, If that is the case, then I will will retract. I did not at all like (laughs) Strasburg being pulled from the game. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Not only because of the... um, you know, the sort of mythological elements of it. It's a World Series complete game. There mm-hmm. might never be another one of those. There might literally never be another one of those. And while I love Johnny Cueto, I don't think that, uh, I think that uh, Steven Strasburg throwing the last World Series uh, complete game uh, would be perfect and also good for him getting into the Hall of Fame, which he's a, he's on the, the he's like a 50-50 case right now. Yeah. And um, so I feel like pulling a, a pitcher from a world series complete game when the game is not especially tense and the pitch count is not especially high is as egregious a rejection of a personal achievement as pulling him from a no hitter in mm-hmm. similar circumstances and so i didn't like that but also but beyond that because who cares like completely <laughs> who cares beyond that you know like there's a game tomorrow mm-hmm. and you still only have i mean you could I'm going to get to this in a minute, but you have like two pitchers you trust. Right. <laughs> maybe you maybe you have one. Sean Doolittle actually might be the only pitcher you trust. And I will make the case against everybody else uh, in a moment. But Sean Doolittle might be the only person you can trust. And now it's very easy to say, oh, he's getting two outs. That's what, seven pitches. He'll be fine. But A, that's seven pitches and a warm-up, which mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how much that, I don't know if that costs him four pitches tomorrow i don't know if it costs him 14 it's presumably cost him at least one though Uh, but also you don't know if he's going to get those two outs he might come in give up you know walk the first two batters and before you know it you look up and it's 17 and now you got a problem because Mm -hmm. he's he doesn't have two innings in him tomorrow yeah now beyond that i don't know who they trust tomorrow presumably max scherzer but the fact that Max Scherzer was warming today is really scary to me because yeah. <laughs> it suggests the possibility that he's only got an inning or two at a time, that mm-hmm. they don't think that he's got seven innings in him, and that he is just another reliever tomorrow. I don't know if that's true. Maybe they, I mean, they'll presumably he'll start the game and maybe he's still pitching in the eighth. Maybe they don't even know. But the, I mean, if they were willing to take, bullets out of Max Scherzer's arm for tomorrow for today's game. That's weird. That's really weird. And it really raises the possibility that he is not actually a a full starter tomorrow. That's not conclusive. I might be totally wrong. I would say that the chances that him warming up mean that are maybe like 20 or 30% if I had to place some odds on it. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if they can trust Max Scherzer. And plus, even if even if that's not the case, you still don't know. You don't know how he's going to wake up tomorrow. Yeah. Corbin, short rest. Sanchez, short rest. <laughs> also, is you know he's Anibal Sanchez. He's not. He's not Patrick Corbin. He's at a different level. Hudson got hit hard in his last start and is doesn't have nearly the the kind of length of dominance that Sean Doolittle has had in his career. And then that's it. That's the whole team. We named them all. So, I mean, I'm thinking that I would save every pitch I had. I mean, I'd pull Strasburg if I thought I could bring him back tomorrow, but I'm pretty sure that he is the one pitcher. Mm, I think, I don't think Strasburg will pitch tomorrow. No, I I saw people suggesting that. I can't imagine. I mean, why would you want to? Uh, He's never done that, right? Why would you even want? I mean, he's a good pitcher, but to pitch the day after he went eight and a third or even if it were seven or something that would be wild i don't think i mean i don't think you would need to do that if you're in a situation where you need an inning that badly i don't know that you're winning anyway and i don't know that he's your best option like how could you even project even if he were physically able to do it and said he could do it 
how could you evaluate whether he would be effective at all in that situation? I would have no way to judge, and I, I wouldn't want to throw him into that situation. So, so yeah, I, you're talking about Game 7. I've still got Game 6. No, I know. I, no, no, I'm <laughs> just saying, though, that if if you thought that Chip Hale was actually making the decisions in the ninth, mm-hmm. then you could say that the terrible call on Trey Turner actually could end up costing the Nationals because it cost them their manager in this game. And mm-hmm. then Chip Hale went and pulled Strasburg in the ninth inning and, you know, said, so that's, I'm still talking about game six. Yeah. Well, so, uh, <laughs> so in that moment where Dave Martinez was about as mad as a manager ever gets, which is very mad. I mean, it's hard for me to, he really looked like he wanted to hurt someone. I mean, he was, you know, he was breaking tackles here. Like, I don't know exactly what he wanted to do other than, I guess, just get up close to the umpires and yell at them from a very short distance. I, I've never, like, experienced that anger in in my life, like that level of anger. So I, I can't even put well, myself in that yeah. place but it's like what's the goal here like yeah no if i ever did feel that anger i could not be trusted to be around people and so yeah. it's crazy that he is that angry and also wants to get as close to his yeah, enemy as he like, can <laughs> if i'm ever that angry ben i want yeah. you to i want you to drive me far away i will try chip hale was trying you don't have a driver's license no though, i don't but, <laughs> well chip hale was doing his best and i was wondering what was going through his head in that moment like what percent of of it is, oh gosh, I don't want to have to <laughs> manage the last couple innings of this incredibly crucial game and screw something up somehow. I don't know. He's a veteran baseball person. Maybe he felt perfectly equal to the task. But part of it is that. Part of it is just like concern for Martinez, who has had heart problems and you just don't want him to get so worked up like that because maybe you're worried about him another one is that like you don't want him to i mean if he actually attacks the umpire or even makes some kind of inadvertent contact with him i don't know what he would have to do to get suspended for game seven of the world series but that was like in play it I guess, can you appeal? Can a manager even appeal a suspension? I guess. I don't know. I don't know either. Are, <laughs> I don't know either. And I, I'm just, this is wild and irresponsible speculation, but there were two calls against Victor Robles that were, that seemed so bad to me at home plate today that they briefly passed my mind. I wonder if the umpires are mad at him because he flung the bat at one of the, you know, in the direction of one of the umpires yesterday. <laughs> uh-huh. Probably not. Almost certainly yeah. not. But, you know, you don't want Davey Martinez is to like you don't want him to spit in a in in his face basically right you don't want it to get to that point where you do something where uh, now 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 you're their enemy or even if you just bump him inadvertently because you're mid spin move like he almost did (laughs) he he came very close to just ramming into him just because he was trying to get away from hail and he had so much momentum at that moment so like It's it's interesting too that you're not allowed to make contact with the umpire and yet you are you usually get away with pushing your bench coach into the umpire like you can make him <laughs> yeah. touch the umpire like yeah. one of my things that i've been working i've been workshopping this this bit about how uh that one of the things about about local government that i love the most is that uh if you have one of those old box TVs and you put it in front of your house the city won't come pick it up but if you put it in front of your next door neighbor's house they will because now it's like been discarded and they have to go do it for the neighbor. Like they have to go remove it. Now it's a nuisance. Uh-huh. Chip Hale is the box TV. <laughs> yeah, I get you it. Can, <laughs> you can, you can, anyway. So he, I mean, he did, wait, what were you saying? <laughs> well, I was saying he almost ran into him just because he, he had escaped the, the tackle essentially and he had broken out of Hale's grasp and he just managed to stop short and he was like jabbing his hand over the umpire's shoulder and it came so close I was like fretting like, oh no, don't do not do something you'll regret when you settle down and somehow get yourself out of a game seven. And so, yeah, that, that was... Uh, and then A.J. Hinch was also upset like in the bottom half of the inning, I think. I don't know what specifically he was upset about. Probably the needless New York call that may have iced Harris, but everyone was mad because uh, it seemed like the umpires didn't know what they were doing here. And uh, 
take me out to the ball game was <laughs> playing in the background as Martinez was just out of his mind here. So that was some scene, really. And uh, I'm I'm trying to sort of scan Twitter as we talk to see if there's like anything that would change our minds about anything or clarify anything. And I see Craig Goldstein quote tweeted a two and a half minute video of Joe Torre trying to explain this to Ken Rosenthal. And Craig says, this cleared up absolutely nothing for me. <laughs> so I'm guessing it wouldn't clear anything up for me, but I'm reading a Steve Phillips tweet now. Joe Torre explained that Turner was called out not because he was running out of the 45-foot line, but because he interfered with Gurriel catching the ball. The ball and Turner arrived at the same time at the base. That is when Turner has the right to be in fair territory. Bad call, says Steve Phillips. And (laughs) I'm like seeing back-to-back tweets in the timeline with people defending the call and excoriating the call. So it's one of those. It's a... It's like, so here's Cliff Corcoran quote tweeting that Steve Phillips tweet and saying, if the fielder has the ball, he owns the baseline. If he doesn't, the runner owns the baseline. That's the essence of obstruction. Most recently codified in the home plate collision rule, Turner arrived before the ball. The baseline was his. He should have been safe. So he's agreeing with Phillips there. And and I think agreeing with us, that is uh, our take on this, that, that basically like if it's an umpire's judgment call and the run looks the same as like 99% of other runs to first base, then probably your judgment should err on the side of let's treat that the way that we treat all of those other runs. There's a, sometimes you'll have a play where the catcher has to throw down to first and then the runners in that lane. And uh, if that one is usually a lot easier to see when a runner is obstructing or interfering or whatever, but Mike, Kruko, I think, has said like that the important thing is if you're the catcher there and he's in your way is you have to make sure you hit the runner in the back because mm-hmm. if you hit him, it's interference. But if you throw wildly, then it's not. And uh, that's just mm-hmm. that's that's the rule. Yeah, <laughs> you, it's a weird rule, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I just I don't know where Turner really could have gone because the, the throw was just like tailing across the the foul line and i guess i don't know like i probably wouldn't have been i mean it it was only called because the throw was bad right because the throw yeah. was wide not because yeah, of but, where I turner mean, was and it was called because it, it it was called because he you know interfered with where the throw was and i mean yes. you could <laughs> you could say that you know it doesn't matter you, peacock gets the whole peacock gets the whole base right he get mm-hmm. uh, he doesn't have to throw it at Guriel's chest he gets anywhere that Guriel is trying to catch it but yeah I mean he it was because the throw was wild mm-hmm. okay all right I don't think skipping any of these tweets is changing my mind about anything or making my mind clear so unless I see something else I guess we will leave that there and hope that this rule is changed sometime soon so yes the the Max Scherzer warming up in when was that? The seventh. That was before the before, play. Yeah, before or, the play. Yeah. Although it looked, he was still standing up in the ninth, and I don't know yeah. if that means that he was throwing or not. So the only thing that I could think, other than just he warmed up unilaterally because he just always that's wants just to Max. be. Yeah, that's Max. Unless it was that. I thought something that Joe Buck said, which is just that basically, like, you can't count on him mm-hmm. to be ready tomorrow. So, like, he, he can pitch right now. His arm works. His neck is not spasming. So let's use him while we have him, while he's available. But if that were it, that just doesn't make that much sense to me, really. Because at that point, so it, was it still 3-2 at that yeah. point? I just, yeah. I just don't know that, like... A, Max Scherzer, healthy and 100%, I guess he is significantly better than Doolittle and Hudson for two innings. Like, if it were 3-2, you'd rather have fully healthy Scherzer trying to finish it off than those guys. But A, Strasburg was still cruising and had a low pitch count and is a playoff god, so leave him in for a while until he runs into some sort of trouble. That's how the postseason works this year. But also, like, yeah, once the lead got larger, then I just, I don't even know what the marginal gain 
to bringing in Scherzer in that spot over the couple of relievers who are well, fairly well-rested and whom you trust. And you don't really even know what Scherzer's condition is. Like, even if he says he's fine, is he actually 100%? Probably not, right? So what's the difference between Scherzer with sort of an iffy neck and rested good relievers? Probably not, not a huge difference. So why take the chance that you're costing yourself a, a Scherzer Game 7 start unless, as you said, like they just don't think that they can get a good start or a long start out of Max Scherzer in Game 7, in which case I, I guess get to Game 7 before you worry about Game 7. But like if there's any chance, and the fact that Scherzer recovered this quickly and he was available for this game, give him another 24 hours, I mean maybe he takes a turn for the worse again. You can't really predict it, but you would guess that it's likelier that he gets better than gets worse, you would think. And if you get a good Max Scherzer start in Game 7, that is huge. That's a big advantage over Anibal Sanchez and, and Patrick Corbin. So really, uh, it just didn't make much sense to me for him to be warming up there unless unless he really just can't count on anything from Scherzer now. And if that's the case, then do you even really want him in that game at that time? Yeah, yeah. 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 So then Strasburg, you you brought this up already, but yeah, 106 pitches. And at that point, you have a 7-2 lead and no one's on base. And I, I just, I don't really know why you would make that change there. Because as you said, there's some risk that Doolittle runs into a jam or you just want Doolittle fresh. And you know Strasburg can get through the two outs or you have to expect that he can he hadn't even allowed a base runner in that inning and it wasn't like his pitch count was so high by the standards of this postseason in so, fact he had he threw the 18th most pitches in a start in this postseason yeah to to go into the ninth <laughs> and i'm sure he's thrown more pitches in previous starts right he threw 114 in yeah. game two right yeah. so yeah i don't i don't get it unless uh unless you know maybe he in fact said, he's thrown three Three games where yeah. he threw more pitches than this in this yeah. uh, postseason. So if he said between innings, hey, I'm out of gas, I've got one more batter or something, then sure. But uh, other than that, I can't imagine why you would want to make that change there. It just doesn't really make much sense to me. But, you know, probably ultimately not that significant. When did Doolittle pitch last? Doolittle pitched on, gosh, so Monday was an off day. He did not pitch on Sunday. Or October he did pitch. 27th, so yes. it was two days ago. So yeah, nothing. Yeah, he did pitch, right. So Nothing. Yeah. I got yeah. nothing. Yeah, I don't know. That was a weird one. And what else here? You've had some great signature moments for Rendon, for Soto, for Bregman, as we thought at the time. So Bregman, since we started recording, has apologized for the bat carry which I would not have expected. A, it's not egregious, really. B, it's Bregman. I Uh, would not. Yeah, I think that you need... He's trying to defuse things. Yeah, you need to apologize so that you will quit getting owned, basically. (laughs) Like if you... He... He, I think we need to be, we need to be honest here. Alex Bregman did not demonstrate good feel on that play. It, (laughs) It was not a good look. And I don't mean because he showed up the game or because he disrespected anybody. I mean, it, it was like, it was a bad idea. It just didn't look good, right? And when <laughs> yeah. you, and his coach didn't know it was coming, and when he fumbled the transfer. <laughs> right. And then it the was, bat's just like out on the field, like it in was, the baseline. It was super dorky, right? <laughs> and he never, nobody has ever looked older at 24 <laughs> than Alex Bregman right and then. Jose Altuve raised his eyebrows uh, yeah. like, Oh, Ooh. a bunch of them did, yeah, yeah, a bunch of them did. I mean, that was a really, it was a... Yeah. It was a dud. It was weird. I don't know whether, <laughs> do you, like, did his brain just short circuit and it's like, hey, I just maybe hit a game-winning homer in game six. And, oh, by the way, I, I, I didn't even realize I'm still carrying the bat. I better hand this thing off. Or was it actually, like, part of the celebration? I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I mean, it, I thought he was going to flip it at, like, uh, the 45-foot mark. <laughs> yeah. I thought that's the, when the it was. The 45-foot mark. And then, I don't know, I, I think he just kind of had this feeling like, it wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. The timing's not right. I'm just gonna I'm gonna delay the decision. <laughs> and it was awkward, and it just set up Soto for such a momentous, yes. uh, that a was momentous <laughs> counter move. I mean, everything that Bregman's wasn't 
Soto's was. I mean, Soto's looked so confident and it looked right. And you <laughs> yeah. understood the context of it. You understood the intent. You knew mm-hmm. what the author was saying. And yes. then he goes to his his first base coach, who's also confused, it should be said. And rather than clumsily hand it off to him, Soto drops it and it bounces up into the first base coach's hand. I, I believe I saw that. I I think, if, if, forgive me. Crazy thing, I don't even know. Would Turner have beat that throw? I think Turner might have beat the throw. No. Uh, anyway, I'm watching it. They're showing the replay right in front of me over and over again. That's why. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so with Soto, oh, and, and Soto's, oh, the home run was such a home run. Oh, yeah. Too. That was just, <laughs> It's such a such a massive home run, and I don't know. I mean, Bregman. I think Bregman. I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to speak for what he was thinking, but if I were him in that moment, I might have been thinking, "I want to have a signature bat flip here." And mm-hmm. you get kind of caught in between, and before you know it, you're doing something <laughs> unprecedented, and you're thinking, "Is this it? Did yeah. did I? Did, nobody's done this. Is this <laughs> the, is this the thing?" And you sort yeah. of convince yourself, "Maybe this is the." Th- <laughs> Thing. Yeah, maybe I found it because Carlos Correa up the ante with his like, you know, the the ear, the hand to the ear, and that was a new thing, sort of. And so you want to one up Correa, maybe do your own signature thing, <laughs> but this was not the thing. So he said in his apology, he said his emotions got the best of him. He said he needed to apologize because it was not how I was raised to play the game. And then he was asked about Soto mimicking mimicking him, and he said he deserved. It, which was uh, probably true, if only just because it looked so awkward. And then Soto just had the perfect response as well. Not only the bat carry, which was the perfect response, but then his verbal response, which was, quote, I just thought it was pretty cool. I wanted to do it, <laughs> which is just great. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh, man. I love yeah. that. I yeah. love that guy. He yeah. made Alex Bregman look so old. Yeah. Alex Bregman's usually the one making people look old. He's yeah. the one who make, looks like perfectly in command of everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the tables were turned. And to do it on the road, you know, <laughs> sort well, of. Everything has happened on the road. That's Yeah. Funny. So, <laughs> yeah, the bat carry, not going to catch on, I guess. But this was wild. And uh, as everyone pointed out, this is the, the first best of seven series in any sport any of the major sports in north america with best of seven series where the road team has won six games which is very unusual well unprecedented and and strange and we were complaining about it in our previous episode because we were saying it kind of takes the crowd out of the game and it makes it less of an entertaining spectator experience but i didn't really get that sense in this game because a lot of it happened late and There were late rallies and big moments even late, and the crowd was just so riled up by the play Mm -hmm. that it never got dead quiet. Mm -hmm. So there were just so many big moments. Like that Strasburg strikeout of Altuve Mm -hmm. with, uh, was that? Bases loaded. No, second, it was second and third, and third right? One yeah. Out. yeah, and it was three pitches, right? And he, I, none least, of them fastballs. Yeah, yeah, just like made him look silly. Like yeah. you, Altuve is like the guy that you probably want up in that spot, and he just totally wildly chased one. And Strasburg had just—he uh, sort of cemented his postseason legend. He has just been absolute nails this postseason. It's been fun to watch. Yeah, it has. It's it's I I love I love my favorite players tend to be the ones who are who seem like they're one good year away from being on a Hall of Fame track and one bad year away from from not or who seem like they're just like right there on the edge because it feels like the stakes, the historical stakes are so high with them and uh so Strasburg has just been there for the last for this year, and it's been a lot of fun to watch him. And like we said earlier, I think there's something really delightful and great about the fact that the the greatest pitching prospect, you know, in history, the the guy that we all knew as a college pitcher who we knew before we'd ever seen him, who mm-hmm. we were looking forward to, uh, and who had one of the great debuts of all time. That it it nevertheless took him a decade, basically, to find his, you know, to find this this peak. And uh, it's great. I, I I like weird aging curves, and mm-hmm. um, I am kind of hoping that he's just good for his thirties now, and that we finally get the payoff. Yeah, right. Oh, and- so you guys, when uh, I think Meg completely blew my mind when she said that he's like 
four months younger than Kershaw or something like that. Oh yeah, I, yeah, I mentioned that. I think that was me. Yeah, was yeah, wow, yeah. Or I think it, I think I was repeating something Bauman had observed. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that is accurate. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. That is one of the craziest. I mean, <laughs> the juxtaposition of two players' ages is one of my favorite fun mm-hmm. fact setups. And but yep. that might be the all timer. Like I was not prepared for it at all. Yeah. By the way, just because it got lost in everything, but George Springer had another great game, is having another great series. He has now climbed to ninth yep. on the all-time championship win probability added leaderboard. And trails. among hitters, he's what, like third oh, or something? Yeah. It's yeah. like basically freeze and... And freeze is, right, and freeze is retired now. And so it's, yeah, Pete Rose is just ahead of him and Babe Ruth is up yeah, there. Babe Ruth's mostly come from pitching. Right, that's right. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it's yeah. yeah, freeze Rose and Springer. Yeah, he's this is of, updated already. Yeah, wow. real time. Yeah, holy cow, <laughs> Dan Hirsch, he's pretty good. Yeah, so oh, and the other thing was that Strasburg said that he was tipping his pitches in the first inning, and that the Astros picked up on it. So again, the eternal debate about whether the Astros are actually savants at picking up pitch tipping or whether everyone just thinks they are now. Either way, it's in their heads. And so I think he said that the Nationals pitching coach tipped him off to the potential tipping and that after that, he was he like started waving his glove, shaking his glove around to try to confuse the Astros, and he did not allow a run after that. So if that's the case, then the Astros maybe only scored off him at all because he was uh, tipping in that first inning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They, um, yeah, it looked like he was tipping mm-hmm. <laughs> in the first <laughs> inning. Uh-huh. getting hit. So oh. here's my question, Ben. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you had to bet on somebody to throw the final pitch of this World Series, who will it be? <sighs> I guess I would have to say Roberto Osuna. I, oh, you, yeah, uh, yeah, you think? You don't think it's, uh, like, if the Astros are in it at the end, you don't think it's Garrett Cole? <sighs> hmm. Yeah, it could be. It's it's possible. I don't know. I just I don't know whether when you get to the point in the postseason where it's like, oh, we we're gonna bring in the ace because he's the ace, and I just don't know at what point it's actually the best thing to do. Like, is Garrett Cole with a career high innings on what two days rest? Is he actually better? than Roberto Osuna in that spot? I, I don't know. Probably, maybe. Certainly, like, Cole as a reliever would be the best reliever in baseball, you would think, because he's already the best pitcher in baseball. But I, I just, when you start asking someone to do something that unusual, it's almost like you're doing it for the narrative, like for the satisfaction of having your ace on the mound. Like, that's, I think, maybe part of the problem that Dave Roberts ran into with Kershaw Except that Roberts is still thinking, I think, of Kershaw as he was a few years ago. Like, he's just not that guy anymore. But that's the inclination. It's like we want to have that guy on the mound for this moment. So I don't know whether Cole would be ahead of Osuna on the depth chart. But certainly possible. And also certainly possible that the Astros do not win the game. Yeah, I was going to say, you're also <laughs> you're also saying that they're greater than 50% to... Yeah, to win they are not only greater than 50 percent to win but greater than 50 percent to win not in a walk-off yeah because if they win in a walk-off then a national would still throw the final pitch true so do you think that one of these teams is favored i i don't if we don't have yet the fan graphs odds but Mm -hmm. uh get we don't we obviously don't know scherzer is either you know scherzer could be all the way or scherzer could be you know he throws three pitches it locks up and then he's gone so Given that it could very quickly turn into a uh, you know clear the Astros being clear favorites, assume mm-hmm. Scherzer is healthy, starting, and does not have any any unnatural restrictions on him. Who who favor who are you favoring in that matchup? I think it's really close in that case, but I think that's almost like laboratory conditions that I, I wouldn't count on at all. I don't know. I'm looking at. Uh, 538 right now which seems to be updated has the astros 52 48 over the nationals so you know a a coin toss basically Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. with home field advantage for houston and i guess fan graphs is updated right because it has the astros as 60.3 
1.5% favorites, which is much higher, but Fangraph's odds have been higher pretty consistently, at least the ones on their playoff odds page. So I do think that the Astros are favored, they're the better team, they're at home, and the odds can't take this into account, but you can't expect 100% Scherzer. Like, I, I don't know that we've even seen 100% Scherzer for the past couple months as he's been dealing with these various ailments, and now you add a new ailment to the list, and, you know, three days ago, he couldn't move his arm, <laughs> so... I just don't know what he is. I would assume that he's good, and under normal circumstances, I'd rather have him than Granky, certainly. And Granky has not inspired a lot of confidence in me this postseason, but he's very good, obviously. So uh, it's it's close, but I'm glad that it's coming down to this. This is kind of fun. This has salvaged, I think, the series. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll be a blowout and an unfun Game 7, but this very... Wild and memorable Game 6 to force a Game 7 with the chance of a comeback and the underdog winning and seven road wins <laughs> in one series. And uh, yeah, this has, this has some narrative potential here. Yep, I'm excited. All right. So I think that we've covered it here. <laughs> I, am, uh, I apologize for... Oh, I have one more thing. Oh, okay. Go very, ahead. very, very, very quick. All right. Do you remember when Adam Eaton got hit? By the pitch on the foot. Yes, yes. I'm 98% sure that the umpire mic caught, before the pitch came, when it was on its way, caught Eaton going, aye, aye. <laughs> How far from contact? <laughs> I don't know. Like in the in the final 10 feet. Uh-huh. But before before the, you know, that, that, uh-huh. the, the, the thud of contact. Uh-huh. Well, that. That's relatable, right? When totally. you stub your toe and you know the pain is coming, you say something before you actually feel it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, you didn't think we could do an hour on one game, and uh, we just about did. So, yeah, this was really something. All right. So <laughs> if you must send us your emails with your interpretations of that rule, feel free. But uh, I'm not sure that you can change my mind because uh, I think we all agree that the rule was bad and that the call was also probably a little bit bad given the rule. But I, I, if you must do it, please, just don't do it through the Patreon emailing system because we don't want to <laughs> feel obligated to reply to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyone who's not a Patreon supporter, we could safely ignore. No, we we often answer those emails too, and we appreciate your non-financial support. But but yes. <laughs> All right. So that'll do it, and we'll be back shortly after Game Seven to wrap up this whole thing. All right. So I'm sitting here just refreshing Twitter as the tweets continue to come in about the play, all about the play. I don't know that I've seen baseball Twitter so divided about something since the dress and is it black and blue or white and gold? It's that kind of disagreement. Like you've got Joe Torre saying one thing and then you've got the MLB Umpires Association saying another thing. And I'm looking at these tweet threads where you have smart baseball people who I very much respect, completely disagreeing about what the correct call was here. And even people who played the game, like former major leaguers, professional players, just contradicting each other and interpreting this rule in completely opposite ways. It's hard to know whom to believe because this is one of those situations where you'd think you'd defer to the players who have been subject to this rule for years and years. And yet even they do not seem to be able to agree about what the correct call was here. So I am very, very grateful and relieved that we can all agonize over this and debate it endlessly without having it stain the legacy of this World Series and having it be a call that we talk about forever. And hopefully we can just fix this and then we can all laugh about the day when we were all very confused because the rule as written is inherently confusing. People are tweeting screenshots and videos and GIFs and 
diagrams, self-made diagrams showing what the path of the runner would have to be to conform to this rulebook language. Anyway, first base inside the line, runner's lane outside the line. Tough to square these things. And I know this does get called this way sometimes, but not all the times. So we are lucky that we avoided an even worse situation here. We didn't even discuss Justin Verlander in this episode, I don't think. Of course, everyone is citing his continued winlessness in the World Series. Again, he was not great, but not terrible. Wasn't missing a lot of bats, obviously. The first run that was scored against him was just sort of a product of positioning a weak ground ball. But then he did give up a couple home runs, which he is wont to do. That is how you score most of your runs against Justin Verlander this year, both in the regular season and the postseason. You hit homers against him. However, he is pretty good at making sure that those homers tend to be solo shots, as he did in Game 6. So I'm sure he would have liked to get this particular flaw removed from his record, but I would certainly have confidence handing the ball to Justin Verlander in a World Series start. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already pledged their support. They are helping keep the podcast going and getting themselves access to some perks. Julie, Loco Sports... James Cubbon, Patrick Montuori, and Thomas Burton. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcastfangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with one more episode this week after Game 7. Talk to you then. Now.